And we're back. Welcome to this week's episode of Until Green Card Do Us Part, a weekly show where we address the issues that immigration-based marriages made a few feet short of heaven create for American citizens and their families. I'm your host, John Sampson, CEO of CSI Consulting. Our favorite guest, Emily, is back to discuss the Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA, and how it's used by non-citizens in gaming the system and throwing the U.S. citizen squarely under the bus without any recourse. Without any further ado, here's Emily. Welcome back, Emily. Welcome back, Emily. We're on the air and we're live. Thanks for having me again. I'm actually enjoying this cathartic experience um, talking about these technical immigration issues with you. Well, I think what it is, it's maybe actually therapeutic and uh, helpful. I think. Yes, it, it truly is. Instead of it just ruminating in my mind, I'm getting it out. Right. And I'm finding it very help, helpful with friends to say, just listen to these. I don't have to keep repeating myself. Right. Because everyone's so incredulous that mm-hmm. this system works the way it does and disadvantage, uh, disadvantaging U.S. citizens. Well, I think, it's, I think it's an easy conclusion to reach that it's somewhat Byzantine and French Kafka would have... A field day with this. It's government run amok. Yeah. So yep. here we are. And what we're going to discuss today, you and I have already kind of gone through the pre-show stuff of this, but is we've pretty much have covered the whole I-864 issue, but we're going to segue into the Violence Against Women Act provision. And then we'll come back to the 864 as the insult to the injury. So for, all right, so a little history is in order. In 1994, then U.S. Senator Joe Biden introduced legislation in the United States Congress called the Violence Against Women Act. It was a bipartisan bill. Um, and it easily passed through both chambers and was signed into law by Bill Clinton. In 1996, it made its way into the Immigration and Nationality Act in specific codification, Uh, and that came about as a result of the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996, also known as ERA-IRA. And it set up the whole system on how a non-citizen could self-petition to get a green card based on the, on the allegation that the non-citizen married a U.S. citizen, that that marriage was bona fide and in was entered into in good faith, and that the non-citizen was the victim of abuse or neglect at the hands of their U.S. citizen spouse. The problem is the way the law was... Let me, real quick, that sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? Because you think about power dynamics, financial instability, not knowing your way around, maybe not knowing the language, not having the funds to hire attorneys. So on its face, it sounds reasonable. And then I'm sure you're going to get into the details. Right. And that's fine and dandy, but the problem is that when it was 
codified, they set up regulations that prohibited the U.S. citizen or their family from submitting any adverse information to USCIS. Well, they could submit it, but USCIS was prohibited from considering it. Okay. And the theory behind it is that, again, we're, we're getting into power dynamics. We're getting into, well, the U.S. citizen is controlling the foreign national and holding their immigration status over their head. So that was, you know, as they say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm-hmm. The problem is that part of the privacy provisions of VAWA prohibits USCIS from disclosing anything about a VAWA-based claim, whether it be an I-360 self-petition, an I-751 petition to remove the conditions of residence seeking a waiver of the joint filing requirement claiming abuse, a U-visa or a T-visa, U visa being a victim of crime visa, T visa being the victim of human trafficking. They came into effect in the year 2000 through the Battered Immigrant Women's Protection Act. So VAWA is expanding, okay, because initially it was spouses of U.S. citizens, okay? Mm-hmm. And then in an effort to be inclusive, we now include spouses of non-U.S. citizens or non-citizens who are here legally under some sort of a non-immigrant visa or even illegally, either having entered the United States without being inspected and, or paroled and admitted or overstaying their visa or violating the terms and conditions of their admission. So we have now opened it up to virtually everybody. And when you and I were doing a pre-show, you had mentioned, and I'd like for you to comment on this, how popular this, yep. this is. So go for it. Yeah. I mean, um, you had sent me when I was really doing my research and freaking out as I went further and further down the rabbit hole, how just absolutely um, insane this whole situation is. There was a general accounting office report. What was that like 2012? Um, stating that they, that basically the nutshells, they were concerned that this was a loophole um, that was allowing a lot of fraud and it was a national security issue because the number of vowel waivers had grown exponentially over the last 10 years. And of those, it was something on the order of 70 to 80% were being approved. And in fact, I had consulted with, consulted with several immigration attorneys who said, yeah, if your ex-spouse, well, he's now ex-spouse, files mm-hmm. a VAWA waiver against you, it's, it's pretty high probability that it's going to get approved. Um, this was completely shocking to me. And further, I don't understand why VAWA has this privacy uh, provision when it comes to immigration, but not with any other application of VAWA, especially with U.S. citizens. So I pressed charges against him, and there were two uh, contempt of court uh, 
charges for violating the restraining order. He knew that I'd done those things. He had the opportunity to face me as his accuser, to show up in court. I had evidentiary standards, like I had texts that said he was going to kill me from someone else. I couldn't present them unless they were in the room and they were from Tanzania. Um, I had the reasonable doubt standard um, because all of those were criminal cases with the restraining order. It was the uh, preponderance of the evidence standard. But basically, I had the highest standards held against me for proving under VAWA that he'd done these um, these things to me. So in reverse, he could have, I believe he was intending to, I don't know for sure if he did or not, um, file a VAWA waiver against me, and I would never know it. I would that, never have the right to face my accuser. I would never have the right to provide this other evidence, which the immigration attorney said, oh, you know, you don't get to provide the evidence because they just look at you as like a biased, you know, bittered ex-spouse. And I was like, wait, why is that the case under immigration law and process? But it's not the case under the criminal law. So I'm, I'm guilty without any kind of trial or um, anything under uh, VAWA immigration implementation. But he is not guilty under criminal law where I actually have proof and texts and evidence and witnesses. Um, but it wasn't to the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt or I couldn't submit it because it was hearsay um, and things like that. Right. So, so now let's talk about the varying burdens of proof for immigration. In February of 1996, 19, oh, scratch that, February of 1966, I'm sorry, it's 30 years before that, in a board of, <laughs> well, it's, it gives you an idea of how long this has been around. Uh, the Board of Immigration Appeals came out with a decision entitled The Matter of Brantigan, B-R-A-N-T-I-G-A-N. Oddly enough, it was a denial of an I-130 alien relative petition in which the district director of the old INS determined that their marriage was fraudulent. Gee, imagine that. Way back in 1966, they had this problem. So the applicant appealed the decision of the district director to the Board of Immigration Appeals. And the Board of Immigration Appeals came out with the decision stating that it is the burden lies with the applicant to show through clear and convincing evidence that they are eligible for the benefit being sought. Now, clear and convincing. The applicant meaning the alien or right, the immigrant. Right. Or the citizen if they're okay. filing the I-130, okay? In mm -hmm. any event, the, the, the bar to reach on the vast majority of immigration applications and petitions is clear and convincing evidence. You have to show that, yeah, this is, this is really what's going on because in 68 years plus of American immigration jurisprudence, the, the theory, the, the standard in this country has always been Immigrating to this country is a privilege. It is not a right, despite what the open border crowd wants you to believe. So with this in mind, when VAWA came along, those who are 
supportive of the Violence Against Women Act provisions of the immigration law, the open borders crowd, said that that standard is unreasonably too high that no person could meet that standard. So what they did was they lowered the standard all the way to the basement and set the standard for evidentiary proof to be any credible evidence. So the way this works is the alien runs into court, gets a protective order, a temporary one, and then submits that temporary protection order as, quote, credible evidence of the abuse, unquote. And up until recently, USCIS never bothered to ask, well, what happened at the hearing once the the U.S. citizen who's been accused... Contested it. Contested it. I have been beating my head against the wall for a long time, and I think finally got through to them that, you know, this is a temporary order the initial order, that it's ex parte, meaning it's only one party. The accused has never had their opportunity to not only know to afford their side of the story, but that they don't even know it's going on, which is very similar to the I-360. They don't even know what's going on, and USCIS can't confirm or deny that an I-360 or a 751 seeking the waiver based on abuse or U visa or T visa has ever been applied for. Okay. So the immigrant has the absolute lowest burden of proof, which Mm -hmm. is credible, Mm -hmm. but the U S citizen has the absolute highest burden of proof, which is reasonable doubt. Correct. And you could say, well, the immigrant has a lot on the line because they might get deported back to their home country. And Mm -hmm. that's why we need to make it easier for them. But the U S citizen also has a lot on the line, including their own reputation. Correct. Um, you know, you've told me stories about school teachers who then were fired from their jobs. Correct. But then, no matter what your income is, the U.S. citizen is still subject to paying that I-864 affidavit support. Right. So it's not consequence-free for the U.S. citizen. So this imbalance of power and power dynamics um, doesn't make sense for the immigrant to have the absolute lowest burden and the U.S. citizen to have the absolute highest burden because there are high consequences on both sides. So let's, resurrect, so let's resurrect the I-864 for just a second, because while we're having this discussion, the light bulb goes on. And you and I last week were saying, well, you know, there should be some modifications on when the I-864 terminates. So, and one of the provisions is if they seek an immigration benefit where there is no requirement for an 864 to be filed. All right. And and the example would be um, citizen, non-citizen get married. They file the paperwork with USCIS. The citizen withdraws the paperwork in a timely fashion. And then the non-citizen files an I-360 self-petition. So it acts to terminate the 864 that was filed initially in order to seek the benefit under the normal circumstances. So here is the magic bullet. And, and while we're having our discussion, the light bulb, as I said, went on. The moment an alien files an I-751 claiming abuse, that filing should act to terminate the 864. I don't think that would fly, though. 
I don't think I, it would fly I, I, because then you wouldn't have the, the, the incentive to say, like, let's say there was real abuse going on. You'd be like, well, either I have to stay with my abuser or I can divorce them and file for I-864 support and get my paycheck, or I can file for actual, you know, protection um, and claim, like, let's say you were actually being abused by a U.S. citizen. Well, here's, here's the argument, and this is where it might fly. When the alien files a 751 alleging abuse, okay, in effect, it is the functional equivalent of an I-360 self-petition claiming abuse. And in an I-360 mm -hmm. case, there's no requirement for an 864 to be filed. So why then would we need to require an 864 on a 751 based on abuse? So I have a question. Those U and T visas that are victim of a crime or victim of sex trafficking, um, basically, if they get the visa and then they have any financial trouble, they can still uh, get government benefits, right? Correct. So it's almost like asylum or refugees, the government decides, like, we're going to give you a break, you get to stay, you've had, you know, terrible hardship, whatever that hardship may be, you stay and then you're eligible for government benefits. However, if you say, I am a victim of abuse from my U.S. sponsor, um, you can get, you can get, still, you, you can get. You can get yeah. public assistance that way too. So, the, yes, but you also have the option to sue your U.S. citizen, and why not do that? It's sure a lot easier to just get a paycheck, and, correct? You know, a check from your U.S. citizen versus going through all the paperwork. Right. So the simple solution to this whole thing, the most rational, logical, easy solution, is if you file a seven fifty one, and and let's let's walk down this road for just a moment. You file a 751 seeking one of the waivers of the Affidavit of Support Enforcement, okay? Or okay. You're, you're seeking a waiver of the joint filing requirement, I should say. And the waivers are U.S. citizen dies. Obviously, you're not going to have a joint filing. Second of yeah. all, the marriage has ended in divorce or annulment through no fault of the alien during that two-year period conditional permanent resident trial period time. Okay. That one, I, I'm having some heartburn with the, that one I have the, yeah, I have the problem with that because then why isn't the spouse or ex spouse doing the joint filing? Just saying like, Hey, our marriage didn't work out for whatever reason, but I don't want this person to have to go home as a result. Or like in my case, my, my ex and his children, especially his children, I don't want them to have to go home if they like it here so because if it's not a viable modified, you would file together you would well, file together to have you know okay we're not together but we're going to file this jointly so that they get to stay now the, what are the situations where you wouldn't be willing to file jointly to have that contingency removed okay right it no. would be abuse would probably be number one suspicion of fraud suing for support and refusal to work like all these outrageous um, situations that can happen in the first two years. Right. And CIS, USCIS is just like, oh, it's cool. We just take you at your word. Right. We won't even ask the U.S. to send anything. Like, they, they do. I do not have the opportunity to send any information in. There is no website, no attachments, no address. I've sent stuff before and just guessed and sent it to multiple USCIS addresses. Have no idea if it was received. There's no confirmation. 
it's this black hole where the the U.S. the sorry the immigrant has complete, interestingly, control and and the power dynamics are tilted towards the immigrant if you split up in those first two years. Okay, so let's 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 attack this from in bits and pieces. The first thing, divorce annulment. The purpose of filing the 751 is to say that the marriage is still viable and that you're still together as husband and wife. So in the event that, as you suggested, if the parties have already separated or worse yet, gotten a divorce or an annulment and then file a 751, making it look like they're still together, you're filing, you're you're engaging in in a criminal conspiracy to defraud the government of the United States. So that's not, that's a non-starter. As far as the waiver is concerned, hang on. Mm-hmm. My board does not have a cough button. So, um, <laughs> uh, well, actually it does, but I have to learn how to use it. There's, there's, this board is pretty interesting, but in any uh, event, <laughs> in any event, you, you have a situation where the abuse is the is the one that is an issue because the VAWA provisions slam the door on you, the U.S. citizen. On the U.S. citizen, yeah. Okay. If you were to get divorced or annulled during that two-year period, there is a likelihood that, you and your you and your immigrant spouse will be interviewed a second time by USCIS mm-hmm. upon the filing of the 751 seeking a waiver because the marriage ended in divorce or annulment. Mm-hmm. So you get to you get to give your side of the story under those circumstances. Where you don't get to give your side of the story is when the alien runs in and says, I've been abused, I've been abused, I've been neglected. And they say, poor baby, and they shut the door on you. And you can't, not only can you not say anything, you're not even supposed to know that they filed the 751 seeking the waiver on them through, through so, abuse. John, that's really interesting. Because I know my ex has filed the 751. He's trying to get the green card, uh, get the waiver lifted without my participation. Mm-hmm. No one has asked to interview me. No phone calls, no letters, no nothing. So that makes me think that he probably did file a vowel waiver against right. me. Well, and that may be because otherwise I would get some have some kind of participation. You would you would think that you would. Now the the way you know this whole thing about how to respond to all these dynamics with all the fraud. Is, is something that's fluid and we come up with tactics and strategies as we go further down the road and experience more situations. So in your case, what I would suggest you do is notify USCIS that there has been a divorce, that he is no longer living with you and pursuant to the provisions of the 864, you are required to notify USCIS. And then, Uh and then as an afterthought, should USCIS need to interview me based on the 
reasoning behind a divorce or the facts behind a divorce or the validity of the marriage, I would be more than happy to be interviewed. You're not reporting anything because if I remember your settlement agreement, you're not supposed to try to interfere with. You're not not going to do anything that negatively affects, but I I agree. And and last time I took notes and I'm taking more notes that I have a duty to under the I-864 advise what is going on with this relationship because this is a continued green card based on marriage. Right. And we are no longer married. So, so yeah, that would be that would if if you know if you were to come to me as a client and say, "What should I be doing next?" My answer would be, "You should be pre- preparing or prepping a document for USCIS to let them know a he's no longer with you, b the marriage has ended in divorce or annulment, c your so that you don't run afoul of the settlement agreement, you do not put in, I believe that this is a marriage fraud. If you've already reported it prior to the settlement agreement, you're good to go and you know that's fine. And then you yep. suggest that you are available to appear for an interview if USCIS deems it necessary. Okay. This yep. is where policy and procedure needs to be researched as to the interview requirements set forth in the in policy and procedures manual, which used to be called the field adjudicators manual, in which the standards are set up as to when an interview is mandatory. And mm-hmm. what you want to do very obliquely is to create that situation where the facts mandate an interview. Because that's the way you get your story in. And then you've yeah. got... Yeah, and that was one thing my attorney was concerned about is that, you know, e- even if I answer their questions, I could be doing something to harm his opportunity to get a green card. And she advised me to just say, I plead the fifth. Because either I'll be in contempt of court of this judgment, or I would be lying to the federal government, neither of which are good for me now. Well, But uh... I appreciate that you said this judgment actually is unenforceable. Mm-hmm. Because I cannot commit fraud with the federal government, even withholding information. Correct. Um, is is illegal, right? That as well as eighteen USC. So, but I do love how I'm subject to all these things that could mm-hmm. be illegal and I could face repercussions for. And I. <laughs> and he that's skates. Very one-sided in the power dynamics are off, right? Yeah, and he skates. Yeah. Well, I got a question for you around. You know, so let's say, and I do suspect this, and I still suspect he filed a, a, a vow away for making claims against me, especially because, um, and we may have talked about this before, too, I waited two months to file a re- police report against him. Like, I was absolutely shocked. It was surreal. I had no idea what had happened. I thought I knew no one that this had happened to before. I didn't know to go, who to go to for help. I didn't know what the resources were. Um, so it took me two months to like get my bearings, decide what I wanted to do, and decide what um, actions were available to me. Uh, and people give me a hard time about those two months. Like, why didn't you go the very next day? I was like, I, I didn't know what to do, where to go, what, what would happen next. Right. But on that very same day, I mean, the, the exact time I was in that police station, and I thought I had turned off all my location services. I was in hiding for two weeks because I was legitimately afraid of him. I don't know how he knew I was there at the exact same time. He showed up 
to file a police report against me. Also two months later, right? But why would he show up at the same time? Like that's what's really clear to me is he wanted to file a vow waiver. And I believe that the way it went down that night, he also had no marks on him. He had no proof, right? Um, no whatever defensive wounds, stuff like that. So I think he tried to provoke me to provoke me. He didn't get the results that he wanted. Um, he didn't file a police report because that really would have blown things up. I was still paying for everything at that point. Mm-hmm. And once he somehow figured out that I was going to file one, he went to head me off and file one because this is where my question comes is what's considered credible evidence under the VAWA? Like I was told by this one immigration attorney, all he has to do is make a statement, not even a police report, but make a statement or get other people to to write out a few sentences on an affidavit, which, by the way, the, the company he keeps, he, they would write anything, and as nothing gets verified. Um, you know, that, so that's just one of my questions, is like, what, is it, what does it take to have a vowel waiver seriously considered? Okay. So the answer to that question is multifold. First, it depends on whose desk this lands on. What may be credible evidence for one adjudicator may not be credible for another adjudicator. There was a case in in Denver where a German national, and we're going to get into the visa waiver program in a moment because it's going to affect the case you and I are going to talk about in a little bit. But Mm -hmm. the bottom line is, this individual was from Germany. He entered the United States on a visa waiver admission, meaning that he did not have to go through the normal visa vetting process at the American consulate in Frankfurt, Berlin, or Hamburg. And as a result, he agreed that if he were found to be either inadmissible at the port of entry or were to violate the terms and conditions of his admission, he would agree to be deported from the United States without a hearing before an immigration judge. In exchange for that agreement, he would be admitted for a 90-day period without extensions being made available He could not change his status to that of another non-immigrant status, such as a temporary worker or a student or any of the other myriad non-immigrant visas that are out there. The only thing he could do was to adjust status to that of a permanent resident based on a marriage to a U.S. citizen, period. So, So he marries a U.S. citizen up in Boulder. They have a little girl together. He is arrested, charged, and pleads guilty not once, not twice, but three times to third-degree domestic violence assault. Whoa. Yours truly arrests him after the third conviction. We begin the removal process. Now, there's no hearing before a judge, so no notice to appear in removal proceedings is issued. An order under Section 217 of the Immigration and Nationality Act is issued by the district director, or now in the new world, post 
ICE. It's the field office director or the special agent in charge. In either case, an order is issued. It's under Section 217 of the Act. And we make arrangements and put them on an airplane and send them back to Germany, to Frankfurt, wherever we're going to send them. And he hires an immigration attorney in Boulder who immediately files an I-360 self-petition claiming that not the wife, but he was the victim of abuse. In yeah, and, that, and, and then what I know is that immediately stops all removal proceedings. Well, that's not true. That's what the common knowledge was, or at least the common thought was. But this gets interesting because it, it relates to what you're saying. What's the level of proof? In his case, he had no proof because his wife had nothing against her. In other words, she didn't have so much as a parking ticket, much less, you know, any arrests, you know, protection orders, nothing. So he goes out and he gets three of his American buddies up in Boulder to file affidavits claiming that they witnessed her verbally abusing him. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. So all that's submitted. Now, as you said, the filing of a 360 acts as a stay of removal, except in visa waiver program cases. That's what we litigated in a 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. And a 10th Circuit mm -hmm. backed us up and said, you signed an agreement, Mr. Smith, saying you would agree to being de be deported if you violated the terms and conditions of your admission. And having overstayed your 90 days because his wife never filed the I-130 because he's beating the crap out of her. Um, yeah. Okay, silly her. And, <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the common sense is, well, yeah, just because he's beating the crap oh, out of yeah. you, you need, to, you need to help this poor person become an immigrant. So um, endure the abuse. John, it's insane. We were married for seven months. As you know, I don't know if I gave the timing before, but seven months we were married. He got uh, his green card like five and a half months in. So it was like four, five or six weeks from him getting the green card to him assaulting me. Mm -hmm. And people were still like, I hope you can do whatever it takes so that he and the kids don't have to leave the country. <laughs> and I said, you mean even if I have to give him all of my take-home income, potentially for the rest of my life? I'm like, oh, well, maybe not that. But still, um, can't you find a way that he can stay? I'm like, he punched me in the face. And so you were, I, you and you were pregnant at one point. And you... together. Right. Yeah, well, I didn't know I was pregnant until I was miscarrying, and it was like a week later after he fell to me. I'm like, whoa, this, yeah. this so, trauma, that's a whole other trauma. So, but, the, but the thing is, like, you got all these weird, this, since it's a woman who's the U.S. citizen, we get these, this weird confluence of immigrant rights versus, fem, you know, women's rights. Right. And over and over again, it's like, as a woman, you, you need to just be more forgiving and more understanding, and you possibly did something to make him angry. Or surely, surely you can still just forgive and find a way for this um, let's say a double S hole to stay in the country. Mm -hmm. In my case, uh, I'm also, I'm uh, ethnically white. 
my ex-husband is ethnically black, but he's truly from Africa. Right. And that made it that much weird. Three dimensions, immigrant um, misogyny right. and racism. Although in this case, it was more reverse. Right. Because we are, and I think it's super valid, absolutely 100% valid, far more concerned about how people of color are treated in the judicial system. However, in my case, it's like he's an immigrant. We don't want him to get deported. Um, he's of color. We want to make sure he gets his fair shake. Oh, and you're a woman. Well, we don't believe you women. You know, y'all are just dramatic. If you file anything, you're a biased, uh, you know, bitter ex-spouse. So, mm-hmm. so I'm hearing this, as you're talking about this situation with the German guy and the woman, and like, yeah, why, why shouldn't she support him and file these documents so he can stay? Well, it gets, um, it gets better. And I, feel like I got to take like a very short tangent, too, and, and I promise I'll let you come back. <laughs> But I think it makes it, this is that much harder for um, male U.S. sponsors, U.S. citizens. Mm-hmm. Because most of the time, not in my case or where they're worried about judging, uh, making a judgment where an immigrant could be deported, most of the time in many states, more in California than in Oregon, they do give the woman the benefit of the doubt more and more. They want to actually protect the woman. Like, why not keep a restraining order in place if she's actually afraid? Correct. Um, and so I think it's really tough um, if you're, you know, in my situation, but you're male, because people want to protect the woman who's also an immigrant, right? Right. You really don't, you really don't want to hurt her who's both the victim and the immigrant. In my case, I'm the victim, but I'm the U.S. citizen, so I still need to pay, and we we want to make sure he gets to stay, um, well, no matter what he's done to me. There, so there, that's my little rant: is like the rant against misogyny, and also the flip side of like how challenging it would be to be a male accused of domestic violence um, falsely by an immigrant who wanted to stay and take right. advantage of him. Well, as I was going to say, this 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 case gets even better. So, in the I middle know. of all this litigation. And this is when it used to be the old INS before it became uh, USCIS versus ICE. The regional director for the Denver, Colorado area that, that included Denver in the region actually got on an airplane, flew to Denver. It was me, my field, my, my, my boss, the head lawyer for immigration, the chief counsel, uh, the district director, the deputy district director, and the regional director in a conference room knocking this thing out. And he was absolutely flabbergasted because I had done all the homework, had the report, had her background investigation done, which showed she didn't have so much as a parking ticket, had copies of the affidavits that were vague, self-serving, and you know, just trying to prop this guy up. Mm-hmm. His criminal mm-hmm. convictions and everything else, and the regional director said, why are we messing around with this? Deport his ass. Mm-hmm. So while the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals was, case was pending, we did just that. We put him on an airplane and sent him back to Deutschland. The Tenth mm-hmm. Circuit Court of Appeals came out with their decision saying, first off, this is a mood issue because he's been deported, but, and then went into a law, yeah. had he not been deported, we would have ruled in favor of deporting him because he signed off on the, the, the I-94W, 
which is the form you fill out when you get off the airplane and give to immigration. And you answer a list of questions and you agree by signing it that you will accept the decision of immigration, whether to admit you, not admit you, deport you if you violate, etc. So they said, if, if, if you sign that waiver, nothing you do will stay your removal unless you get a court order. Mm. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, USCIS in Vermont and the Vermont Service Center and the VAWA unit was not happy with us. So what did they do? They approved his I-360. So ultimately, he could then apply, <gasps> he could then apply for an immigrant visa in Germany. He would have to seek a waiver of inadmissibility because he had been deported, but I would venture a guess that the social workers at USCIS or the Vermont Service Center at that point would have granted the waiver because after all, we revert back to Emma Lazarus's poem, The New Colossus, in which she says, and we all know this because we were taught this in school, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free, your wretched refuse teeming from your shore. That's what's driving this entire mindset for for what's going on. You know, I mean, I can like, I can understand that, like wanting to help people have a better life and opportunity and some of the things people are fleeing. But the problem I have with it is that, you know, I'm fully on board with it's a privilege, not a right. So you do need to have like some pretty darn decent behavior as a human being, law abiding citizen, but certainly not do any of this or or get to stay in the country um, to the, the, not just detriment, but in some cases, destruction of the U.S. citizen that you have defrauded. Like, mm-hmm. talk about not just brokenhearted, betrayal, the amount of money that you spend to get somebody here, uh, the public nature of it. I, my wedding was held at the founders of my organization. My boss walked me down the aisle, and then I have to tell them that I was, I was duped, <laughs> right? right? It was all just a big farce, and now I have all this stress and, mm-hmm. um, you know, financial stress, and they're, like, worried about my performance as a result, so I'm now, like, not talking about it and, you know, compartmentalizing my life from this extreme trauma uh, to trying to just perform at my high-pressure job. Like, this is this is my beyond my worst nightmare. I couldn't have even conjured something like this up, and that's where it has to stop. Like, U.S. citizens should also have some rights here. Right. <laughs> In fact... I think the U.S. citizen should have more rights because we pay taxes. Right. Right? We, we buy, I'm a good citizen. I'm a community member. I volunteer at the Wazoo. I've been the commencement speaker at the local college. But I, I am, you know, a sacrificial lamb in mm-hmm. order to keep this guy in the country who's also in this first year got a DUI, too. Like, he's he's not law abiding he's not contributing to the community um and my ability my capacity to give was severely um reduced like i mean that's i wish i had you know words 10 million times stronger than that and only now that the divorce is over i'm back to like i'm volunteering on the city budget committee i'm going i happen to have an emt on the side i'm administering vaccines because they don't have enough people to do that I'm mentoring somebody just for free that's, you know, economically disadvantaged and wants to get into business school. Like, this is the stuff that I just do naturally. And I feel like I have such a, uh, so much to give, like, 
like my efforts really amplify and reverberate through a community. It's how I'm oriented is to live a life of service. And then I basically feel like I've married someone who may sound strong, but who, who is a parasite to both me and the United States. And I am deeply regretful and ashamed of having been duped and brought this person over. And I have no recourse. That's the point. I you have, have no, no recourse. recourse. You don't. Um, so this is a good place. There, there, there's two things I want to bring up. First, one of the things that went on uh, and goes on to this day is that USCIS and the old INS before it would have naturalization ceremonies in their offices, okay, in the waiting room or the conference room. Um, and when I was an agent, I would periodically walk in and watch these ceremonies go on and, and see the new bumper crop of citizens being sworn in, taking the oath of citizenship. And one day I walked, mm -hmm. I walked into the waiting room, which is where they were holding it. And I'm trying to remember who administered it, whether it was my buddy Sam, who was a retired light bird colonel from the Army, or whether it was somebody else. I think it was somebody else. In the waiting room, getting sworn in as a citizen of the United States was a young man in a U.S. Army Class A uniform. He was enlisted. He was a specialist. I don't know whether he was a specialist four, specialist five. And the newspaper was out there. I think it was the Rocky Mountain News when they were still in, a, in publication. And I heard mm -hmm. the reporter ask this young man what I consider to be a really stupid question. But it also but it also illustrates the mindset of some people. Why have you chosen to become a US citizen? Why are you serving in the army of the United States when this isn't even your country? And this young man gave yeah. perhaps well, the answer he gave was perfect. He said, This country gave me an opportunity. And I'm mm -hmm. repaying the people of this country by serving in its armed forces because I devoutly believe in this country. Mm -hmm. This young man was from Kenya. And mm -hmm. I went up to him as a military yep. veteran myself. I went up to him. I saluted him. I shook his hand. And I said, if there are more of you in Kenya with that same mindset, send all you got. Yeah. Okay. As yeah, and that's been my experience my whole life until this, and I'm like, whoa, there is there is another side. Well, to and the story. and now getting back to the bad side of the story, I have a case in Washington D.C. The young man involved is the father of two. He met his non-citizen spouse while he was posted to Mozambique as an employee of the Department of State. His spouse and mother of his children was from Slovakia. While they were in Mozambique, they get married. She gives birth to two kids and then proceeds to domestically assault him 
He calls the police in Mozambique. They come, they arrest her. They charge her. She gets convicted. She gets sent to jail. And based on the domestic violence assault, he files for and obtains a divorce. And in the divorce, he gets sole custody of the kids. Okay. Mm-hmm. His time serving in foreign service ends in Mozambique and he rotates stateside, brings the kids with him, leaves the Department of State and starts his own company. His Slovakian ex-wife, because the divorce was final in Mozambique, comes to the country under the visa waiver program, which we just discussed a couple of minutes ago. She enters the United States on on the I-94W. It asks specifically, have you ever been arrested, charged, convicted, confined to jail, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Had she answered yes, she would have been denied entry. She had to have answered no because she was admitted. So she committed fraud and entry. She then comes in, files a divorce, in Balt in Maryland, in Baltimore, claiming you know, their divorce. First off, she hasn't resided in the state of Maryland for the requisite period of time for her to get jurisdiction conferred upon her. It's called impersonum jurisdiction. Second of all, the marriage has already been terminated in a foreign country, and under full faith and credit, that divorce is as valid as if it was obtained in the United States, and she failed to disclose that she had been divorced in Mozambique. And then she turns around and she files an I-360 self-petition. In the meantime, she's abusing the kids to the point of which the kids were hospitalized on a couple of occasions. The husband, the, the father of the kids, is trying to get child protective services and the police involved because he fears for the safety of his children. And they tell him that they're not going to get involved because she is a foreign national and they do not want to do anything that would result in her possibly being deported. So not only were you a sacrificial lamb, but these two kids are a sacrificial lamb right along with her husband because of the give me your tired, your poor crap. So bad enough as this is, my client pays me to fly to D.C. I meet with ICE unannounced. This was remarkable. I walked into the ICE office. I sat down with three of their guys, laid it all out. I said, she's a visa waiver overstay. The holding in Schmidt v. Maurer, which is the case we just discussed out of the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, is very specific. You can deport her. I-360 notwithstanding. Did they do it? No. Uh They wound up. Oh, my God. (laughs) USCIS and its infinite stupidity granted her the I-360 self-petition, even though she was the abuser and the U.S. citizen spouse, ex-spouse, was the victim. And she lied. And she lied. committing fraud. You know. So where do you think this, I mean, I had the impression too, but I can't say where I got it from. Where do you think the impression came from that it's so hard to get into the United States? Is it really just the, like, the asylum seekers and the refugees? Because people are like, you know, they're really in a terrible situation and it takes years and, you know, it's all a travesty. But in these other situations, it sounds like, you know, the immigrant can do no harm. 
They can be criminally charged. They can plead guilty. They can lie, commit fraud, um, abuse. I, my ex, too, is a, um, investigated for abuse with Child Protective Services. You know, it's, I'd act with complete impunity and, and keep the right to stay in the United States. And it's so contrary to what the public impression is. And I'm just trying to think through, like, why, why, do, why do people think it's so hard? And but, yet the reality is, okay, is ex- that you can almost do anything and get to stay. I'll explain it to you as best I can. There are two classes of immigrant visas that we deal with. Those Mm -hmm. that are numerically limited by Congress, X amount of visas per year per country. Okay. Like a quota. A quota. You're talking about employment based visas, family reunification visas, where we're talking about spouses of permanent residents, children of permanent residents, brothers and sisters and their spouses and children of U.S. citizens. Those are all, and other immigrant classifications, those are all numerically limited. So many per year per country, okay? So there's this thing called the Visa Availability Bulletin that the Department of State puts out every month. And you can go on it, and you can look and see where people stand in getting a visa to come to the United States. And you'll see a date. It'll be a, a day, month, and year based by certain... Oh, I remember this. I was watching it constantly, yeah, for the K-1 and K-3 visas. So, so this, this. this is for immigrant visas. So you go through all the employment-based visas, you go through all the family-based visas that are not exempt from the numerical limitations that Congress sets, Okay. And mm-hmm. you'll see a date, and that date signifies where they are in processing paperwork for immigrant visas. In other words, if you saw a date that said January 15th, 2000, and it was, say, China, mainland, okay? And yeah. it would be they're processing that visa classification for people who have filed on or before that date. So that gives you an idea. If we're at 2021 and they're processing visas for the year 2000, you're 21 years out. Right. Okay. So So I remember that because we filed in December 2017, and it was like, I mean, it was like 10 months out, which to me felt like horrible because I was very much in love. Right. Yeah, so I remember that. That's probably part of it. Okay, that's part of it. Now, the other part of it, which which encourages the fraud, is that spouses, children, and parents, those three relationships of U.S. citizens are specifically exempted from the numerical limitations. Those visas are immediately available and there is no cap on the number of visas that can be issued. Ah, so it's the, one of the easiest ways to get in because there's no requirement for you don't wait. talent, employment, education. Right. It's just get, get a U.S. citizen to marry you. Right, file a paperwork. In many cases, milk them for the 10 years or however long, then become a U.S. citizen, which is what we have also 
um, theorized potentially my ex wants to do is then in 10 years, like we also said, they're willing to play the long game. Mm-hmm. Right? This is for the, the promised land, right? And then he can bring her over and the rest of his family, but it starts with the original right. marriage, which is the easiest way to dupe an mm-hmm. American who's in love and looking for whatever they're looking for, which in my Correct. case was a loving spouse and a family. Right. And there you go. And <laughs> yeah, that's that's basically the ticket for this. And it is the the one thing that we as Americans suffer from is we are not patient. As a country, we we want immediate satisfaction. Other people in other not patient. Oh, I'm patient. And we're also not discerning. Right. Uh, Like, well, I'm impatient because I'm like, I'm in love. I want him to get here, you know, as quickly as possible. And I knew maybe it'd work out. Maybe it wouldn't. Like, it's possible he could have hated the U.S. And, you know, we've talked about the color of his skin. We have issues. Like, maybe that would, he'd just be really uncomfortable when I go back home. Right. We didn't know, but I was like, I I don't want to sit here for years apart from the person that I love. And, and others are so much more patient because if it makes their life better, their family's lives better in 20, 30 years, they'll do it. But I'm also not discerning. Like fraud, corruption, um, I learned there was something called future faking. It's all the promises. It's all the promises and just enough of a breadcrumb. Mm-hmm. He like really wants it. Like I'm, I'm far too much of a straight arrow. It's beyond my comprehension that someone could pretend and say that they love me and it not be true. Right. Right. I, I, they're looking back, I go, yeah, there's a red flag or two. Sure. Now that I know what I know, right. but I and, never uh, had any kind of training or awareness of what it would look like for someone to try to take advantage of me romantically. Right. So, so let me comment on that. Unlike you, he does get information because of the International Marriage Broker Regulatory Act of 2005. All spouses and fiancés of U.S. citizens and permanent resident aliens are given information about the Violence Against Women Act protections and rights under VAWA. And they're given resource material, specifically the 1-800 number to the National Domestic Hotline, or National Domestic Violence Hotline, I should say. Yep. And so they come preschooled with this. In the Philippines, they have to go through, and in China, both countries, you have to go through a government-sponsored course in that country to advise you of your rights and protections under the Violence Against Women Act in the United States. So you're being educated. Oh my God! Yeah. So, so you have you, the U.S. <laughs> citizen, like has training. absolutely no knowledge of this. And one of the things I would like to see is a companion statute to the International Marriage Broker Regulatory Act, which would demand that USCIS sits you down and explains to you your obligations under the 864 Affidavit of Support when you can withdraw it, when you cannot. Oh yeah. Uh, what your recourse is, et cetera, okay? That would be fair and equitable, but we're not playing on a, on a level playing field. How, how many times have we heard that immigrants, non-citizens, aliens, whatever you want to call them, 
seem to have more rights than U.S. citizens. And, and it, more knowledge, just being three steps ahead at every, at well, every stage. And, yeah. and, and, and this, is where, this is where it comes in to play. Why should the U.S. citizen have to have this knowledge? I mean, the average U.S. citizen has no interaction with the immigration authorities of this country until and unless they come into the immigration program where they're going to be petitioning, sponsoring, or applying for someone, whether it be as an employee, whether it be as a family member, whether it be as a spouse, it doesn't matter. So with that in mind, the average American does not know what's going on. And then to compound the issue, you have the producers of that wonderful the Learning Channel series, 90 Day Fiance, and all its offshoots, in which they, rom oh, yeah. they romanticize it, they encourage it. I mean, it, it's my wife and I have looked at this program. I've stopped watching it. My wife watches it occasionally, and we both say the same thing. That marriage is going to end in, in a fraud that marriage is a fraud. That marriage, maybe not a fraud. Let's see how it goes. Um, the one that's really going hot and heavy right now and has been for a couple of years is Colt Johnson and Larissa Dos Santos Lima. And for those who are listening to this and know the story, uh, there are some developments that are going on with them. But... They were. They were. John, I'm almost. I'm almost out of time, and I'm okay. actually thinking this could be fun to do <laughs> a session about the 90 day fiance. What do you think? I think that's great. So I'll tell you what we do. We've been at this for about an <laughs> an, an hour and a minute. I know we did it again. Yeah. yeah. Well, it goes to show you how well this flows. Um. So. Next week, why don't we pick up with 90 day fiance and go from there. All right. And uh, yeah. until next week, Emily, uh, have a good week. And uh, we'll yeah, see you next week. John. Take care. And thanks for all the work you do. You're Bye. welcome. Bye. Thanks for listening. And tune in next week when we continue with the Violence Against Women Act. In future episodes, we're going to look at and discuss the insanely popular The Learning Channel or TLC's show, 90 Day Fiancé. We will be taking a look at the saga of Colt Johnson and Larissa Dos Santos Lima and where they are today and how their drama evolved. In the meantime, if you have any comments or questions, please send them to me at csiinvestigations at neteason, that's N-E-T-E-C-I-N dot net or log on to Facebook and go to John Sampson at facebook.com forward slash john.csi and leave me a messenger message. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, John Sampson. See you next week.